0: So I was born in the, uh, the great state of Indiana, and uh, the summers in Indiana are pretty similar to summers here. And what I mean by that is late July, early August, you know that feeling of where it just is swampy with humidity, it's unbearably hot, it's like 95 degrees. Indiana is very similar to that. In this one particular summer day, my older brother and I, he's five years older than I, Uh, We're playing outside. I'm like maybe six or seven. He's, you know, 11, 12, whatever that math works out to be. And we're playing outside and we're doing the things little boys do. You know, we're wrestling in the dirt and in the grass. And because we're sweaty, you know, we've got mud, you know, like that weird little mud that gets caked in your neck. And we're, you know, we're just playing and building forts and all these things. And and finally, we have this moment where we're sitting down. And, you know, because we've been wrestling in the grass and dirt and everything, I go, I'm kind of itchy. And my brother looks at me and goes, you're itchy, huh? Hmm. And even as a six or seven year old, I was like, "Well, why did you respond like that? What does that mean?" He's like, "Oh, it's probably nothing." And and if you know, if you have an older sibling, you know there's there's this kind of like unique relationship between an older and younger sibling. And and so I, I don't remember the exact next course of steps, but what I remember is my brother kept watching what I would do, and he would kept making these weird comments. And so I'm itchy, and then I go, you know, we're outside playing. I go, I'm thirsty. I'm gonna go get a drink from the hose, and he goes. Wait a second, you're itchy and thirsty? Ooh. I was like, wait, wait, what, what, what was that? I saw it like you did, what, what does that mean? He goes, well, you weren't playing in the lilac tree outside, were you? And I go, yeah, I was building a fort in the lilac tree out there. He goes, I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm pretty sure you have lilac poisoning. <laughs> now, you can Google it. Lilac poisoning doesn't exist. It's not a thing, right? And, and I go, lilac poisoning, what, what, what do you mean? He goes, I don't know how to tell you this, but it's not good. He's like, I... I don't want to tell you how serious it could be. And he goes, oh, oh, one more thing. He goes, I wouldn't tell mom and dad about this. They're going to be so sad that you have lilac poisoning, right? And so here I am as a six or seven-year-old kid. I'm like trying to quietly sob outside as I think I'm going to die from lilac poisoning, a thing that doesn't even exist. And finally, I don't know if my mom saw me out the window or, you know, she heard me, but she comes outside and she's like, hey, what, what, what's wrong? What happened? And I'm like through sobs going, mom, I've got lilac lilac poisoning, and I don't think I'm going to make it, right? And I just start to tell her the story. And she, at this point, is totally confused. And she goes, lilac, what, lilac, what do you mean? That's, that's not a thing. You're going to be fine, sweetie. And at this time, I look over my brother, and he's laughing, right? He's trying to contain the laughter. But, but here's the thing. Lilac poisoning was a total lie. It doesn't exist. It's not a thing. But the lie that my brother told me totally impacted me that day, right? It, it addressed, or uh, uh, Directed my course of action, made me incredibly sad, directed my emotions, my behavior, my thought pattern. That lie had a drastic and dramatic impact on me that, in that moment as a little kid. And, and I tell you that story because I think it illustrates so well one of the key things that we've been talking about in this series is that lies have a significant impact on who we are, on how we live, on our sense of identity. And if we don't pause to just reflect on what are the things that we're believing, we can find ourselves pretty quickly led astray. In fact, last week, Pastor Steve talked about three significant impacts of lies. He talks about how, number one, lies can divert us from God's purpose. That when the enemy brings lies into our lives, God's purpose for us can be derailed as we get diverted on all sorts of other things other than what God would have for us. But not only do lies divert us from God's purpose, but it can distract us from God's voice. And so we find ourselves listening to all sorts of sources of input, everything but God's word, everything but people of godly influence. And so we find ourselves diverted from God's purpose, distracted from his voice and left unchecked. Lies can destroy godly potential. And so to reflect on where these lies are at in our thought patterns, in our processes, in our behavioral patterns is incredibly important. In fact, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to the church at Corinth. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And as Paul writes this letter, in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, he says this. He says, I hope you'll put up with a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. Now, th- this is Paul, he, he's essentially getting ready to have a sort of dad moment with the church at Corinth right? When he says, put up with a little foolishness, Paul's saying, church, I really want you to take hold of this. He goes, I have something important for you to say. He says, I want you to grasp this. He says, I'm jealous for you. Verse two, with a godly jealousy, I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Now he uses this marriage metaphor. Paul's saying, my job has been to see the church come to Christ and be united with Christ as a pure virgin with with truth and with holiness. Verse three, Paul says this, He says, but I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, catch this, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He says in verse four, for if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you received a a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. Do you see Paul's concern for the church of Corinth? He says, I'm really concerned, Corinth, that you have become deceived and have so quickly departed from the truth of who Jesus is, from the truth of the gospel. And he says, when you encounter these lies, someone comes to the church in Corinth and says, oh, what the apostles were teaching, that's not true. Let us tell you this truth. that's actually a lie, right? And Paul goes, and you easily put up with it enough. And Paul says, just as Eve was deceived by the serpent, he says, I'm afraid that your minds likewise have been deceived. Now, if you remember the story of Genesis chapter three, Eve is in the garden and there's this very clear command that God has given them not to eat from the one tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent comes to Eve and he begins to lie to her, right? He begins to deceive her and he goes, oh, you're, you're not surely going to die, Right? And Eve, it says, she looks at the fruit and it's pleasing to the eye and it looks good. And she hears the serpent's lies and she gives in to that lie, to that deception. And she transgresses this commandment of God in her life. And Paul is writing to the church saying, likewise, please don't be deceived. Anchor your lives, root your lives in the truth of God's word. And the challenge in this Pastor Steve talked all about lies last week. I want to take this one step further. The danger in this is that lies can become ruts. And what I mean by that is lies can become patterns of thinking and patterns of living that are ungodly. And as we continue down these processes in places where we've been deceived and these lies begin to take root in our life, they begin to affect how we live, they begin to affect what we believe about ourselves. And we can very quickly, like the church in Corinth, find ourselves deceived, walking away from truth and living out things that are contrary to God's plan, his purpose and his priorities for us. So here's what I want to push into today. How do we begin to address ruts in our lives? What are they? How do we address them? How do we begin to re-anchor and root ourselves in the truth of who God is and what he calls us to? As, As we flesh this out this morning, I want to look at the people of Israel in the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, there's this account of Israel as they're on the journey of the Exodus. Now, the journey of the Exodus is this time in Israel's history when they had been in captivity in Egypt. They'd been enslaved and the Egyptian pharaohs had forced them under slave labor to build the storehouses and the cities of Egypt. And and things in fact got so bad that at one point the Pharaohs of Egypt were so concerned that Israel would become powerful that the Egyptian Pharaoh told the midwives, he said, if any of the Hebrew Israelite women are going to give birth to a male child, I want you to kill the child. So Egypt was this horrible place of suffering and oppression and bondage for the people of Israel and they cried out to God. And the story of Exodus that continues into the book of Numbers is this account of God leading the people of Israel to freedom. The only problem is Israel continually finds themselves walking away from God's truth and there's this rut, this ungodly pattern of living and thinking that continues to impact Israel. So We flesh this out. Number one, ruts are ungodly patterns of living and thinking. Let's look at how this impacted the nation of Israel. Numbers chapter 11. It says, the rabble with them begin to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. And also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Now, the people of Israel, they've been journeying through the desert. And what they thought was going to be a rather quick trip because of their disobedience turns into them wandering for 40 years. Now, feeding an entire nation in a desert environment is is impossible, except for God and his provision and God and his grace provided this thing called manna. The word manna literally means, what is it? And and manna was this sort of like resin type kind of bread wafer thing that would form with the dew in the morning. And and Israel could wander out and they would collect this manna and they would eat it and it gave them life and it sustained them and it kept them alive in the desert. And now in Numbers chapter 11, Israel gets to this place where, and notice it says the rabble. I I was trying to think about how to define that. Here's the easiest definition of the rabble. The rabble are the people your mom warned you not to hang out with, right? (laughs) So these are the people that, that shouldn't have influence. These are the people you don't want to have leadership. But the rabble, they begin to complain. And they're like, you remember how good we had it in Egypt? All we eat out here is this manna. Manna for breakfast, manna for lunch, manna for dinner. We're sick of manna. And they begin to complain. Now, he, here's the thing. For Israel, this is part of their rut of ungodly thinking and behaving. Israel's rut was complaint and distrust of God and a desire for Egypt. And over and over again in the story of Exodus, you find Egypt, they hit a hard moment, they immediately begin complaining, they immediately begin doubting God's provision, and they immediately go, Egypt was better off. In fact, I put together a list for you. So you could see some of these places. Now, I have no doubt that you can't read all of these right now. So go back on YouTube, uh, screenshot this. You can go look these up. But there are so many places where Israel, either in Exodus or Numbers, they hit a hard moment and they immediately go to distrust. They immediately go to complaint. And the reason I put this list is I want you to see that this is a habitual pattern for the people of Israel. They hit a hard moment. They immediately begin to complain. Now, the problem is Israel's not alone in this because Moses, their leader, has his own rut, has his own pattern of thinking and behaving that's ungodly. Moses' rut is doubt and distrust of God and a loss of hope. And and over and over again, you find in Moses' life, he hits a hard leadership moment and he immediately begins to complain to God, but Moses consistently doubts God's ability to do what God has promised to do. So, Numbers chapter 11, let's go back here in verse 10. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance to their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you? Do you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where can I get enough meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me. Give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. If I found favor in your eyes and don't let me come to ruin. Verse 18, tell the people, this is God now speaking to Moses, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five, ten, or 20 days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you've rejected the Lord who among you, who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, here am I among 600,000 men on foot. And you say, I'll give them meat to eat for a whole month. Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? The Lord answered Moses, is the Lord's arm too short? Now you will see whether or not what I say will come true for you. Honest confession moment. I've always loved the book of Moses because I identify with his complaining. Right? Mo- Moses hits this hard leadership moment. And, and sometimes we have in mind like that the, the characters in the Bible, that they weren't real people. They were somehow like superheroes and they just had it all figured out. And then you read Moses' account and he's really human right here. And and sometimes I find myself in a moment of complaining, a moment of doubting or distrusting God. And then I look and I think, man, that sounds an awful lot like Moses. And, And when you read it, you go, oh, this doesn't look great. So here's Moses. He hears the people of Israel. They're wailing at their tents. I mean, they are so tired of manna. And so Moses goes before God and he's praying and he's like, God, why did you put this burden on me? He literally says, what did I do to displease you that you've made me the leader of this group of people? And literally he says, did I conceive them? Am I their mother? Like you want me to carry them like an infant all the way to the promised land? You want me to baby this nation of people and take their burden? He goes, God, if I have found any favor with you, would you be gracious to me and just kill me? Y'all, this is a bad place for Moses. He's not in a good way right here. And, and in fact, God speaks to Moses and he says, Moses, I'm going to send so much meat. And here, like, God has a sense of humor, right? So he tells Moses, y'all are going to eat meat, not for two days, not for five days, not for 10 days. Not, you're going to eat it for a whole month. In fact, you're going to loathe it. It's going to come out of your nostrils. You're going to smell it everywhere. And you're going to be so sick and tired because I'm going to provide it in abundance, In fact, if you read the rest of the chapter, it says that God brought up this wind and blew in a bunch of quail. And literally, Numbers uh, says that quail were three feet deep, a day's walk in any direction. I mean, as you read the text, it's meant to be funny because God tells Moses, you don't think my arm is long enough to reach into my provision and provide these things for you? You think I can't do this? Moses goes, how do I provide food for 600,000 people? He literally says, if I caught all the fish in the sea, they would still be hungry. And God goes, just watch what I can do, Moses. I'm about to bring so much quail. You have no idea. But Moses, this ungodly rut, this place of thinking and living in his life is doubt, distrust, and a loss of hope. Moses consistently goes there. In fact, in in another moment, when the people of Israel don't have water, God speaks to Moses and he says, Moses, the people don't have water. What I want you to do is I want you to talk to this rock and water will come out of it. Now, imagine you're leading these people who, by the way, they're so quick to complain, right? And now they're thirsty, they don't have water, and there's this big rock, and God says, Moses, talk to this rock, and water's gonna come out of it. And as Moses, I'm going, oh boy. Do I want to be the leader who's talking to a ro- The people are going to think I'm crazy, right? You can just imagine the thing that go through Moses' mind. So Moses, in this moment, he's disobedient. Rather than talking to the rock, he strikes it with his staff, and water does flow out of it. But in that account, in the scriptures, God tells Moses, because you doubted and were disobedient, you will not get to enter the promised land. For Moses, this pattern of thinking and living, where he was doubtful and distrusting of God, where he lacked hope, became such a problem in his life that Moses wasn't allowed to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. So church, here's what I want us to start to wrestle with. Here's what I want you to reflect on. Do you have unhealthy patterns in your life like this? In the hard moments of life, what is your default response? And, And I say the hard moments because often in the hard moments, when the pressure's on, those patterns begin to come to the forefront. The unhealthy ways of living, the unhealthy ways of thinking, those patterns and habits that we've been building, when the pressures are on, those things tend to rise to the surface. And so I want you to begin to think about your own life. Where have ruts, ungodly patterns of living and thinking, where have they taken root? So let's move on to point number two. Let's continue to flesh this out. We have to recognize that these ruts, these ungodly patterns of living and thinking are ultimately rooted in lies not rooted in truth. This is part of what Pastor Steve was introducing this idea last week. This idea that lies have a detrimental effect in our life. And the problem is that when lies go unchecked, they begin to root deeply into our life. So think about this. Numbers chapter 11. Let's go back there. Ruts are rooted in lies. Numbers 11.4. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And the in, again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. And later, God tells the people of Israel, you're wailing that you want to go back to Egypt. And here's what happens. In this moment when the pressure's on, Israel starts to go, man, Egypt looked pretty good. And did you notice how they describe it? They describe it basically like an all-you-can-eat fish fry that's free right? The people of Israel go, hey, do you remember how in Egypt we ate fish at no cost? But y'all, that, that's a lie. That, that is not truth. When they were living in Egypt, they were literally in captivity. They were literally in bondage. Literally their lives were at stake. This was a place of deep and bitter suffering. And yet because of this ungodly pattern of living and thinking rooted in lies, the lie is Egypt is better than here. As God is leading them towards freedom, they start, and it gets hard, they start to look back and go, maybe we should go back to a place of oppression. Maybe we should go back to a place of bondage. And the lie is that what Egypt offers is better than what God promises And, and, and my concern, church, is that likewise we can be deceived by lies and we could be tempted to let go of the words, ways, and wisdom of Jesus and try to live conform to the patterns of, of this world of culture, conform to the patterns of the places where we've been wounded and broken. So let, let's talk for a minute about how lies develop, how ruts develop. Let's throw up this picture of, of a rut. When, when we talk about ruts... And in South Dakota, we're familiar with this because every spring, right, we get a lot of rain and, and the road gets really, uh, the, the gravel roads get really soft and farm implements drive on them and cars drive on them. And what happens is that over time, right, they get really rutted like this, right? And, and what happens is when a rut gets really deep, if you catch your wheel in a rut, y'all, you're just along for the ride, right? If you try to steer too sharply, you're gonna ruin the suspension, you're gonna cause some damage. So if you've ever gotten caught in a rut, that rut, because it's been worn by a consistent pattern of people driving, it takes you along, right? And, and here's what happens, church. We get deceived by lies that become beliefs in our lives and we live out that pattern of ungodly living. We live out that pattern of ungodly thinking and it wears a rut in our life and it becomes our default way of responding. So let, let me flesh this out for you linearly. What happens, right, is we encounter lies in our life. The problem is when lies go unchecked, they become beliefs. And when those beliefs develop, they begin to d- drive our thoughts and actions. And, and so what happens is we encounter lies in, from individuals. Maybe it's a parent who, in a young age, they said something in a moment of frustration that has marked you. Right? Why don't you ever listen? You're such a difficult child and you're hard to get along with. And so that lie becomes a belief that I am a difficult person who's hard to get along with and people don't like me. And that lie settles in. Sometimes it's not individuals. Sometimes it's cultural ideologies. Culture is speaking all sorts of messages into our lives. And when we receive those lies and we begin to believe them, they begin to drive our thoughts and actions. Here's a simple test for you. If you want to know where lies have taken root in belief in your life, I want you to think about the I am statements that you make. I am an angry person. Because when you say I am an angry person, you are making a declaration about your identity. I'm a person who doesn't know how to manage my emotional condition, disappointment, and frustration. So I am an angry person. Is that true? Or are you a person who's been wounded who wrestles with anger? Do you see the difference? One is a belief about yourself that has become a declaration of untruth. I am a a, a cynical, skeptical person. I am a person who struggles to get along in community. And where you make those I am statements, you have to ask, do these align with the words and the wisdom of scripture? Because when lies become beliefs, they root in thought and actions and it becomes a rut, a habitual pattern of living and thinking in our lives. And so what happens, church, is if we don't address this, the rut becomes our default mode of responding. And so somebody does something hurtful and we immediately go to the rut of anger because we've already made the decision. I'm an angry person. And so that becomes our default mode of responding. Now, to short circuit it, we go, well, just identify the lie, right? Let's get rid of the lie and then we can walk in truth. Here's where the enemy is so cunning. Often, lies are half-truths that the enemy wants us to accept as a full truth. This is what the devil does in Luke chapter four when he's tempting Jesus, right? He takes Jesus up on top of the temple and, and Satan quotes scripture to Jesus. And he says, Jesus will just jump off because it's written, he will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up so that you don't strike your foot on a stone. Literally, right? The, the devil throws a little bit of truth of Jesus at Jesus. He takes it out of context. It's a half-truth, but he wants to present it as the whole truth. And Jesus responds with the truth of God's word. And he says, well, it's also written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. And that's where the enemy's cunning. He often presents us a half truth and he wants us to accept it as the full truth. So church, we have got to learn to be a discerning people, rooted and saturated in the truth of God's word. Let's talk about some symptoms of ruts. How do I know if I have an unhealthy rut, a pattern of living and thinking that's ungodly? Here's some questions or some things to look at. Number one, a symptom is where are the places that you're questioning God's truth, God's purpose, and his pattern of living? What are the things that you look at in scripture and go, ah, it doesn't, it can't really work like that, right? The places where we're questioning God's truth are often indicative of places where we have been deceived and have begun to adopt a pattern of thinking and a pattern of living that is contrary to God's word. Secondly, I think you want to look at a symptom of an unhealthy rut. Look at where have you tried to take control and manage your circumstances in your own power? To go, I, I, I can't trust God to do this. I'm just going to have to take control and try to do it myself and my own strength, according to my own wisdom. And, and third, a symptom of an unhealthy rut is where do you find yourself doing things that you would like not to do? Right? This is what Paul talks about in Romans 7. The good that I know I should do, I don't do that. And the evil I don't want to do, that's the thing I keep doing. And the places where we have been deceived and we've begun to believe things that are contrary to God's word, where those patterns begin to develop, we find ourselves locked in ways of thinking and living that are not what God would have for us. And, and I think the temptation for us is like the people of Egypt, that we become so comfortable in deception that to move towards truth and freedom and healing in the word of God, that looks difficult. And so sometimes because the lie and the deception feels so familiar, we would rather stay rooted in it. So here's the big question. How do we begin to address these ruts in our lives? How do we begin to address these ungodly patterns of living and thinking? I wanna draw our attention back Numbers 11, because I think what we're called to, first and foremost, church, is to surrender to God's truth and to his pattern of living. Surrender to God's truth and to his pattern of living. Notice again what he tells the people of Israel, Numbers 11, 18. As God speaks to Moses, he says, tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. Notice this little word right at the beginning. He says, Tell the people to consecrate themselves. To consecrate themselves means to recommit to pursuing the truth of God's way. It means to resurrender our lives. It means that we are set apart and holy. And so God says, Listen, I'm going to provide for you. But He goes, The problem here is that you're living in a place of deception, thinking that Egypt is better for you. You need to set your life apart again, to recommit, to resurrender. And church, there's places where we have given ourselves over to deception, and it's taken root in unhealthy and ungodly patterns of living and thinking. And it's time for the church for us to address those places of deception and to go, Lord, I need to sacrifice and surrender this place to you, this stronghold of deception to you, and I need to resubmit and surrender my life to your authority, to your direction, and to your truth. This this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 12 in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 12, one and two, Paul says it this way. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Paul goes, you want to worship in truth? You you want to worship in a way that's proper? He says, offer your body, your entire life, your entire way of living. Offer it as a living sacrifice to God. What that means is every part of my life is surrendered and submitted to the Lordship of Christ. And what you'll find, church, is if you want to walk in this pattern, is that the spirit of God will continually bring conviction of places that are not surrendered and submitted to his lordship. And, and as Paul continues writing, he says this in verse 2. He says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. He says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And what he says is when you surrender your life to God, God begins to change literally how we think. That when we're rooted in the truth of God and we begin to think along and aligned with the words, ways, and wisdom of God, it changes how we look at things. It begins to renew our mind and we, we no longer conform to the pattern of this world, but we're transformed. So again, let, let me flesh out what this process looks like. When we root our lives in truth, the truth of God's word, and and, and we not just recognize it's true, but we believe it and we set our lives down on it in faith, it begins to drive our thoughts and actions and it results in transformed, a changed way of living. And the beautiful part of all this Right this is not just a, a self-help thing this is not just a try harder thing the holy spirit is is involved in this whole process he empowers this whole thing church we cannot recognize truth apart from the conviction and the power and the presence of the holy spirit and something happens in us when we open the truth of god's word and the spirit begins to illuminate to bring it to life for us and we recognize it as truth the holy spirit in in the power and presence of god graces us in faith to step into and to live out that truth and it re directs our thoughts our actions our minds are literally renewed we are transformed we are no longer who we used to be and so will we come back to this place of saying lord my life is yours That place of anger or cynicism or bitterness or lust or that pattern, that thing, that way of thinking, that way of living that is not of you, Lord, I want to come back to you to surrender this to you, to reorder my life around your truth. Let me me give you some practical steps to addressing ruts. Number one, we need to discern the source of the things that we're listening to. Again, I want to draw our attention to Numbers 11. I'm not going to read it again. But did you notice it said the rabble among them? The rabble were a group of people who who were, were not walking in the words and ways and wisdom of Jesus. This was a group of people who were rebellious in the nation of Israel. And yet they were allowed to have influence and to bring deception into the community of Israel. And one of the things I think we need to do, church, is we need to cultivate boundaries around the places where lies are encountered in our life. And really what this means is we need to be a more discerning people. I I think one of the most accessible ways that we have become is through digital devices. Because of digital devices, we have this constant stream of input. And and, and here's the thing, church. I want us to recognize and to take seriously the fact that you are every day being taught, that you are every day being discipled. The question is... Who or what is discipling you? Who or what is teaching you? And and my concern is that we spend hours doom scrolling, right? We're on Instagram and we're on TikTok. And here's the power of social media is it uses not only words, but it uses images. And it begins to paint a pattern and a way of living. And if we're not discerning and we are enmeshed in the cultural patterns of this world, we find ourselves unable to discern because we're so enmeshed with deception that we stop recognizing what truth looks like. And we are not saturated in the word of God like we ought to be and so we spend hours being inundated with messages and pictures and images that are not according to the pattern of God's ways and God's wisdom and so we find ourselves in a slow drift being led astray I think church that the enemy's biggest plan is not some grand lie of deception it's a slow trickle of deceit that, that wears away at our sense of discernment over time And listen, I'm not saying social media is a bad thing. I'm not saying that the the, the things that around us that we engage are all evil, but I'm saying that they are also used for evil. And if we are not discerning, we have these inlets of deception that we just let have free reign and access to our lives. And I think church, that we need to be discerning and we need to cultivate boundaries around the places where we consistently encounter deception. So some discerning questions with that. What voices are you listening to? What voices of influence are speaking into your life? What messages are you finding yourself believing? Where is fear driving you? Anytime fear drives me, fear has this uncanny ability to make my challenges seem insurmountable and to make God seem really small. And Anytime fear drives me, it wants to tell me this lie that my circumstances are insurmountable and God can't minister in them. And we have to stop letting fear drive us. So number one, discern the source. Number two, determine the outcome of that thought process in your life. And what I mean by this is, as you start to think of a pattern, you're going, man, is this this an unhealthy, ungodly thing in my life? I want you to begin to look at the fruit of that thought pattern and process. Begin to look at, does this, the outcome of this way of thinking, does the outcome of this way of living, does it align with the fruit of the spirit? The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And when we start looking at some of these thought patterns and processes, and we start looking at the rotten fruit that it bears, church, that's a warning sign to say, maybe this is a place where I'm walking in deception. Third, I think we have to decide to address ruts of wrong thinking. And and I don't just mean decide in in earthly power. What I mean is we need to yield to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and decide that we are no longer going to tolerate these unhealthy patterns and ways of living. The challenge though, church, is that sometimes where we're deceived, a lie feels so familiar and comfortable that the idea of addressing it feels more uncomfortable than walking in unhealth and ungodly living. And so we have patterns of, and ruts of anger and lust and cynicism and skepticism that run unchecked in our lives because we're afraid to be hurt. We're afraid to look at the truth of God's word and how it might change how we live. Number four, we need to divert the ruts of wrong living and wrong thinking to a declaration of God's truth. And if you're looking at that last one going, man, that could be a whole message, you're in luck, that's next week. We're going to talk about how how do we how do we in these places where lies are how how do we divert it how do we go back to God's truth and let this have impact in our life. So what I want to challenge you with this week is just to begin to look and reflect on your own life. Are there unhealthy patterns of living and thinking that have taken root and it's bearing rotten fruit, and it's time to address it. As we respond to this this morning, we're we're going to take communion, and communion is a, a moment of remembrance of the body of Jesus Christ being broken for us, of his blood being shed for us. And it's a reminder this morning, church, that it's the victory of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, his redemptive and transformative power that allows us to have hope in these places where we've been deceived. So I'm gonna pray for us this morning and then Pastor uh, Dave is gonna lead us through this moment uh, of communion as a response. So let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the truth of your word. God, the scripture says your word is a lamp unto our feet and it's a light unto our path. And so your word, Lord, guides us in ways of right living and ways of right thinking. And Father, I pray that in the places where we've been deceived, in the places where we have allowed voices and influence that are not of you to direct our thinking, to direct our living, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction where conviction is needed. And God, as we begin to address these places of deception, and as we begin to, empowered by your spirit, move towards places of truth, God, would you give us the courage to address these places of lies, to draw boundaries, and to cultivate a way of living and thinking that is rooted, Lord, in your word, in your ways, in your wisdom. Because we know, Lord, that a scripture says, we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. So, Father, let us not settle for being in captivity to wrong ways of living and thinking when freedom in your word is what's offered. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name.